welcome to TDF Talks, a fortnightly podcast from The Design Files, Australia's most popular design blog. I'm your host, Lucy Fagans, and I'm the founder and editor of The Design Files. Today's episode is brought to you by Mercedes Me. On the corner of Collins Street and King Street in Melbourne, Mercedes Me is an architecturally designed cafe, event space and concept store operated by Mercedes-Benz in partnership with Melbourne Coffee Kings, St. Ali. Throughout June and July, The Design Files has been hosting TDF Talks at Mercedes Me, a conversation series featuring speakers from architecture, design and fashion. This podcast is part of that series. Our conversation with Joost Becker was recorded live at Mercedes Me earlier this month. TDF Talks is an enhanced podcast, which means if you listen using the Overcast or Pocket Casts apps, you will see images and links in your player while you listen. Joost Becker is many things. He's a flower grower and a florist. He's an artist and a designer. He's passionate about food and has been a restaurateur a number of times. And he's a champion of no-waste living. Yoast came onto our radar about 10 years ago when he first started designing buildings, homes and restaurants. He's created restaurants in Melbourne, Sydney and Perth, each with a no-waste philosophy. He's also conceptualised and consulted on really big projects, imagining urban farms connected to suburban shopping centres and utilising the waste from those shopping centres to operate. He's imagined rooftop gardens on Collins Street growing food in the middle of the city, and he's worked with major stakeholders like City of Melbourne and Sydney Harbour Foreshore on those projects. Underpinning all of these ideas, really, is a very unique way of seeing the world. Today, we chat to Yoast about his approach to no-waste living, why he believes our food system needs a major shake-up, and why he believes everything starts with the buildings we design and the houses we live in. This conversation was recorded live and comes with a language warning. So we first met in 2008, you've just reminded me, which was the year that I started the Design Files and we featured one of your early projects and yeah, I can't keep up with you. So we're still here 10 years later and I'm still trying to kind of pinpoint exactly what it is that you do. But before we get into all your design projects, I would love to just talk a little bit briefly about your background before, I guess, your career. So people often ask me, in fact, a couple of my team asked me today, where you're from. So you grew up in Melbourne, but could you let us know a little bit about when you came here from Holland and your early years? I was nine when we came here. And in Holland, my grade one teacher worked out that I was creative and tried really hard to finish my work early so we could draw. All I wanted to do was draw. And so that teacher probably had the biggest influence on me because she recommended to my mum to try and hook me up with a local artist. And there was a local landscape painter called Jan Hollerbetter, and my mum actually went to school with him, so she thought, that's easy, I'll ask him. And he said, no bloody way, I don't want a little kid hanging around. Anyway, she persevered and he agreed, so I started spending my Wednesday afternoons with him. And so from age five till nine, when I left to go to Australia, I spent every Wednesday afternoon, you know, he taught me how to do watercolour, charcoal, taught me about shadows and texture and just, you know, sometimes you just need someone that actually shows you things that you they're right in front of you but they don't you don't see them until they're pointed out to you and so he was quite had a quite profound influence on me and then when I was nine we came here and my family 
started to build a business. And so I completely gave up on my creative career because, uh, or creative anything, because all I wanted to do was work on the farm and help the family build a business. And that's really, I think, where I started to get the love of putting things together and also realizing that you could, you don't need to go to a builder to get something built. You can just build it yourself, you know, so that, well, we didn't have the money to build stuff. So we built our own cool room and we built our own hot room and our own sheds. And yeah, and that's where I got that appreciation of materials and. Yeah. And so with your early career, what did you start out doing besides the family business? Like were you a flower grower and was that your first career outside of what you were doing as a family? Yeah. So I started growing flowers when I was 12 uh, for myself and actually made a lot of money, surprisingly. And so all of a sudden I was this young kid that had money and, you know, uh, and that kind of, yeah, uh, sparked that interest in growing flowers. And But I also had parents that made me appreciate the natural world. You know, we came from Holland where Holland is a man-made country. It's flat. You know, you look at the border of Holland and it's all straight and because that's where they wanted the beach to go or that's where they – it's all man-made. Uh, coming to Australia, especially to Mombok and hills and, you know, Mount Nash at 80, 90 metres tall was quite a something that I couldn't believe, you know. And in, so in, in Holland we appreciated the nature of the place. It's still I still love that place. But I think I appreciated uh, the surroundings more than what people that lived here appreciated because I came from somewhere else. And to the point where um, Ruby, my daughter, did a project on lyrebirds in grade six and she came home and she said, Dad, only three kids out of 28 kids had ever seen a lyrebird. And like they're, they're everywhere pretty much. You go for a walk in the forest, you come across a lyrebird. She couldn't believe it. You know, so that kind of shows that sometimes people, that's why I think uh, immigrants are so good for society because they make people realize that, you know, you're sitting on something really special here. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, a new point of view is, I guess, what you bring. So you said that entrepreneurial spirit maybe was sparked when you were 12, growing your flowers and selling your flowers. So is that, did you always think you would one day set up your own farm or your own property to grow Well, growing up from age 9 to 18, all I wanted to do was be in partnership with my family and run the, you know, be in the business. And so I left school when I was 17 and I was kind of advised to leave because I was too disruptive. I was more interested in the girls than I was in the teachers listening to them. So they said, right. And I left and couldn't wait really to start work on the farm. And then when I was 18, my dad said, and I, I was still sort of doing stuff on the side. And my dad said, you should go away, travel, and then decide, you know, to go into the business to basically have a share in the business, buy a share. And I came back and decided to start on my own instead of going into the business, which I, before that, I would never have thought. But yeah, and it's, so that was 1993 and I've been working for myself ever since. Yeah. So there's a bit of a disconnect there between flowers, farm and floristry with, to then kind of jump to restaurants. So tell us a bit about how, well, firstly, how you came to be doing creative floristry and that kind of installation work. And then I guess how that led to, to working in, in restaurants. Well, I always was aware of what florists were doing, but growing flowers and being creative, I always felt that they weren't doing the flowers that we were growing justice, you know. So, and I always also loved, I suppose, the stuff that others, like I love the roots, the bulbs, the, the stages. I love flowers sometimes more when they're nowhere near flowering yet or when they've completely finished flowering. So, I felt that we as a society were too obsessed with the perfect flower 
And so, yeah, when I started for myself, I was exporting flowers to um, overseas, to Philippines and Hong Kong and places like that. And I was sharing my warehouse with a mate that I saw going out and we shared, he was importing mushrooms and growing mushrooms and selling mushrooms to restaurants like Blake's. And, and so, yeah, I, that's how I was introduced to restaurants. And then I started doing flowers as a bit of a joke, really, one day a week and then loved it and started doing it full time. And then it was around the same time as Melbourne getting uh, the small bar license. I think it was 96. So you could open a small bar license for the first time. And that came at a, that was actually a really creative, exciting time because there were no rules really. There was no, the places were small. So they wanted flowers that had the money to spend on flowers. So that's where that trademark suspending of everything because it was just easier. They had like good budgets to spend on flowers. So suspending meant that I wasn't taking up floor space. And yeah, I just started incorporating more and more waste. So again, the, the waste thing and the waste thing goes back probably to my mum and dad making me aware that stuff shouldn't be wasted and and Holland had that real culture in the late 70s early 80s of looking after you know the environment and all that sort of stuff and and at school it was a big thing but I remember distinctly I was maybe 13 or 14 years old and we my brothers were building a big glass house and they were building a shed and my mum and dad getting a renovation done of a um, kitchen and outside our house was a massive pile of rubbish for the kitchen renovation. It seemed to take a year. You know all about this. Yeah, I do, yeah. The glass house that was, you know, massive, like it was 10,000 square meter glass house of hydronic heating and boiler, a computer. The whole thing was incredibly complex. There was no bin. There was no waste. And the thing was done in six weeks and it was clean, efficient. The containers arrived. They'd build stuff. And I remember thinking, why is it that, getting a simple kitchen reno done in a bathroom generates so much waste and this complex commercial building, why can't they do the same thing, you know? So it's always been been something that I've thought about and, but, you know, I never thought I'd make a career out of it, but I do always, I was obsessive Lego. I was always thinking about design and loved design and my mum was always painting and, you know, the, I suppose I was brought up in a creative family and yeah. Does that answer the question? Not really. Yeah, it does. It does. But I still feel like, I guess I'm wondering, did you ever have this plan or a business plan or has, I feel like your career has been very much a kind of, I realize this is a bit of a pun, but to say organic growth, like you've kind of had this, you know, like approach to just taking opportunities when they've come rather than having a master plan. Would that be yeah. right? Yeah. And there's not a lot of planning that goes on. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember being invited to the races for the first time. It's so not my thing. You know, I was walking around going, this is this is fucking bizarre, you know. <laughs> it was 2006 and I'd never been exposed to that. I mean, I did flowers, so you turn up at 4 o'clock in the morning and you're out of there before any of the madness starts, you know. And I did visualize, I was just walking around with a couple of mates and I just visualized how cool it would be to do something and I don't know whether that actually, I'm starting to believe that it's actually true, but the vision, the f- six months later, I got a call from Bruce Keyboard from the big group and he said, I'll, uh, Macquarie Bank want to talk to you about doing something at Flemington. So all of a sudden, a year later, I'm actually realizing this vision that I had in my head. It was like a marquee made out of waste. You know, the whole thing was made out of, you know, the floor was made out of tires. And, you know, I never thought in that moment, it was so juxtaposed to everything that was going on. But yeah, and then that thing led to another thing. And then all of a sudden, you're doing a greenhouse. And yeah. Yeah. 
But what is it do you think that makes those opportunities come to you? Because, you know, Melbourne is full of incredible florists and no one else got asked to design a building at that time. So what what is it about you that I guess, do you seek those opportunities out or do you feel like that it's more about just being open to those ideas? I think I'm they- open, yeah. You know, I'm hopeless at IP. I don't worry about IP. So I'm very good at ver- uh, verbalising my thoughts and verbalising my frustrations. And But I'm also, there's no point in verbalising a frustration if you don't have a solution. So I'll often verbalise a frustration and then follow up with what I think is a solution. And that's how you get these jobs. Or I might be driving through, you know, a cherry forest that's about to be pulled down because they're too old or whatever. And then I'll verbalise, oh, I'd throw through these bloody beautiful cherries that are going to get cut down and then all of a sudden six months later you get, look, you know, we've got a job. Do you want to use those? I think verbalizing your ideas, we're we're too worried about IP these days. I think the younger generation understand that it's about collaboration and working together and, and being open that actually gets you that work. I've never been worried about that too much. So what about designing buildings then? So, you know, you came from this background in farming, in in flower growing and floristry and and then I can see how that connected into the hospitality sector but then how did you become to be someone that designs buildings at what point did that become a reality i've always wanted to build my own house and of course the house is completely i wanted to design my own house but i wasn't going to build it but i couldn't find anyone to build my design so i had to build it myself and that kind of led on to a whole bunch of other stuff and but i don't know for as long as i can remember i've wanted to i've been frustrated like i just look around me and i just think everything i look at is like a wasted opportunity the buildings today are you know not and i've thought this for a long time we just they're just ego statements mostly from men about trying to create you know something a legacy really that's what most buildings are in my opinion they're all wasted opportunity and once you start getting delving into waste you realize that there's no point trying to it's like the amount of people that show me a recyclable takeaway cup. Oh, can you post this on Instagram or look what I've just invented? It's like, well, no, it's not about finding that's to me a band aid. It's actually about changing the culture and not needing the takeaway cup in the first place, you know? So, and that's the same with buildings. I think we've got to go back. If we want to, to truly create a, a waste free society, we need to actually create food where we live. So, your house, which there's some photos rotating back here, and we photographed your truly amazing house in Mombolg a few years, maybe eight years ago now. And it was such a unique building at the time. And since then, you've designed a number of buildings that bear some similar hallmarks to your home. When and why did the idea come to you to actually grow food on your on a building? Was it with the design of your own house? No, I, I thought about that back in when I was 13, 14. Yeah. So, the idea of growing, because growing up in Holland, and especially I was lucky with my dad. He grew a lot of food. It just, to me, made sense to grow food where you live, you know. And to me, a roof is just wasted if it's not covered with soil. The average Australian house generates 130,000 litres of grey water and that can easily be filtered and used to irrigate water. So in my opinion, every single, the 9 million or 10 million houses in Australia could grow enough food for 35, 40 million people. So you live on, I don't know how many acres, but it's, such a beautiful property and you've got plenty of land around you. So my house is the only house I've ever designed that doesn't have a soil on the roof. 
oh, well, you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> well, I mean, that was the original plan, but everyone that had experience talked me out of it. I just got really no- – I mean, I'd never built a house before, so people said, no, you can't do this, you can't do this, and then that was the one regret, you know. So from that moment on, I worked out that it actually – I could have easily done that, and that's my one regret. So from that moment on – Every I haven't built anything that hasn't had a green roof. And what about the structure? Because it's kind of such a distinctive part of your many of your designs is that that Rio structure. That's quite simple kind of terracotta pot structure around the building. Where did that idea come from? And just growing strawberries all over the exterior of your house. Well, I just had my back against the wall, and you just needed some cladding that looked nice. No, or? I was just trying to think of. I think it was what's the amazing French designer, Philip Stark. You know how he did those um, neo-metro building, the old... Tribeca building yeah, in East yeah. Melbourne. And they yeah. needed something. And, of course, I left it to the last minute and they were expecting me to rock up with some amazing idea the following day. Philip Stark was in town and I'm thinking, what the fuck do I do, you know? And, the, and there was just some Rio mesh lying there and the crate of pots there. So I thought I weld the two together and that was really what I did. So it was just using two wasted materials, really. Yeah. And then Peter Schiavello came up to me and said, I reckon we can sell that. And I said, really? Two sheets of Rio mesh? Who's going to want Rio mesh in their office? And I think it's something in the order of eleven or 12,000 square meters they've sold in the last 12 years. Why is growing food on buildings so important? The main reason really is that we're in decline as a population. Cancer, one in two of us get cancer now obesity, depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, dementia, all these things are actually not, they haven't been with us for that long. They've been with us for a long time, but they haven't been with us to the extent being gluten intolerant. That didn't really exist 15 years ago, you know? So all these things, I believe, are directly related to our food system. And what do you think causes the most destruction on the planet? If you would think about one thing that causes more destruction, more carbon emissions than anything else? I'd probably say something about manufacturing, manufacturing industry. So if you take all of the world's fossil fuels, so that includes the plastic that goes into your clothing, the fuel that flies the planes, the cars, all fossil fuels are responsible for 17% of the world's global emissions. Our food system is more than 50. So we're all obsessed with plastic bags, but I think that the big problem is actually our food system. And You know, I've been banging on about soil forever and I think it comes back down to soil. We are now so disconnected from our food. We've never been disconnected from our food like that. We've only got, we only need to go back two or three generations to actually have a connection again. And in my opinion, the only truly economical and practical and sustainable way forward is to actually deal with waste where we generate it. And I don't regard the waste that we generate as waste. It's a resource. So if you look at Last year, we used, I think it's 100 million tons of gas to create synthetic fertilizer. So some people that are a lot smarter than me say that without synthetic fertilizer, between four and five billion of us would starve instantly. So in other words, if we didn't rely on synthetic fertilizer to fertilize crops that we use to, to eat, you know, two-thirds of us would not be able to survive. So in a matter of you know, our population's gone from a billion to seven and a half billion in, in less than 100, 150 years or whatever it is. And we've used chemicals really to try and prop up a system of growing and it's killing us. And the fertility issues we're having, everything now is starting to go back to the food system. And 
the only way we can solve that problem is to actually incorporate it, you know, biophilic buildings, I think, is not a trend. It's a necessity for us to actually be able to continue to live. So it's about, I think, returning an ecosystem to where we live, being in our food system, and then that also means that we no longer need to keep cutting down rainforests and great, you know, finding more land to grow more food. We don't need to be farming. We can actually grow food right where we live because this is where we're generating the nutrients. And this is not pie in the sky stuff. I promise you that by 2030, this will be the norm. It has to be because we can't keep going on the way that we're going. You recently told me that you're working on a new kind of, or not new, but a mission statement that encapsulates some of these ideas. And you mentioned the word symbiotic architecture. Can you tell us what that means in kind of layman's terms? Well, the biggest regret I have is that first time we met was in Fed Square. That was supposed to be a house. So the greenhouse was actually supposed to be a house. So the idea was that I was going to show people in Melbourne what symbiotic architecture looks like. A building that it had 100 tonnes of soil on the roof, it had a veggie patch on the roof, you know, uh, strawberries on the wall. This is symbiotic architecture, you know, nothing, everything is recycled. Problem was I couldn't make it financially stack up like that and so we turned it into a restaurant we had event space and stuff like that. That's my biggest regret because I've done all these buildings and everyone got so excited about all the system, you know, because me being me, I wanted to, you know, do wine on tap and I wanted to do milk on tap and, you know, mineral water on tap and not composter and all these ideas about not generating waste in restaurants. But every, the idea of a, of a building that grows its own food was lost. No journalist ever actually picked up on that really. And anybody that walked away from the greenhouse didn't say, Oh, I'm going to build a house with a veggie patch on the roof, you know. And that's been my biggest struggle. So I want to try and build a, an example of a building. So my goal is to build a building on 200 square meters that houses two people and that building will grow two ton of food per annum and the food will, you know, and it's able to do that because everything is recycled back into the house, you know, the urine and the feces and there's no waste. And Tell us about that. So when you did your second greenhouse by Yo's pop-up restaurant in Melbourne, was that was the first time that you had an active urine and and feces um, no feces recycle. no I no. would have been in jail I yeah. probably still would be <laughs> we'll get to the red tape around these things later yeah so tell us a bit about that how what was the the concept there and how did you get that to work in, at the restaurant in Melbourne well it's the same we're sitting here and we're talking about ideas and it's very hard for people to to see an idea until they see it actually visualized or until they actually see it operating and so I was just really wanting to show that we are wasting a hell of a lot of nutrients. So we don't need to be use, making synthetic fertilizer. And so that was really to show we harvested 3,500 litres of fertilizer in four weeks. So to clarify, the toilets in the restaurant were... I had to bring them from Sweden and I got signed off by the building inspector. He Let's just say he didn't have a close look at the toilets. He just thought, oh, yeah. So it was totally illegal what we were doing, but we got like a building permit. I couldn't believe it. Got to break a few eggs to make an omelette. You know? <laughs> but yeah, so that was fertilizing the crops on the roof, which were being used in the restaurant. And that was, I guess, the start of that symbiotic architecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it even possible in urban environments, in, you know, apartments and tiny houses, if you're not living on, you know, a lot of land to have that kind of closed loop thing going on? Like, can anyone do Yeah, we that? just need to change the way we design our buildings. I mean, the building that we're sitting under, they could grow. I did the numbers for Lorenz Grollo, who half owns the building about eight years ago. I wanted to cover this building with a second skin 
that just had a, la- a single layer of glass, came out 1.2 meters and was like a skin of tomatoes and cucumbers. And we worked out, uh, I think it's about a hectare, so it's 10,000 square meters of glass that faces east and well, so that, that's in the sun. And you're getting 70 kilos of tomatoes per square meter. That's what we're currently getting in Australia. That's what growers are getting. So that's not a pulled out of the sky. And there's 140 kilos of cucumbers per square meter. So you times that by 10,000 square meters, just this building that we're sitting under alone. Yeah. Now, what would that do for the occupancy rate of this building? Everyone would want to be in this building because all of a sudden you're not looking out at this beautiful city, but you're also looking through a crop of tomatoes and cucumbers you're shading the building so you're not spending a ton of energy trying to keep the building cool because that's what it does. And I don't know if it still does, but back then it was pumping out half a million litres of grey water every day. So that's just utilising what's currently being wasted in an existing building. It's a great building. It doesn't need to be pulled down and rebuilt. It just can be modified and be probably one of the best buildings on the planet, If very simply. Why don't those ideas happen? When you put those ideas on the table, what's holding people back from realizing them? Well, the amount of times that people have come to me and said, we want a game-changing idea, and then you put a game-changing idea in front of them, and then it either gets killed at the legality of not being allowed to harvest urine. You know, oh, but that's going to take... Like the guy who invented the dual flush toilet, Stephen Cummings, said to me, if you want to harvest urine, it's going to take you between 25 and 30 years to get that approved because that's what it took him 20 years to get a dual flush toilet system into mainstream Australia, you know? So it's time and it's, and it's not one person ever. It's just a, people are so risk averse and, and so busy in their own layer of bureaucracy. No one's, no one's got the license to be able to say yes. Even at the very top, people are scared to say yes. Yeah. I guess too, everything you design is an experiment and there's an element of, Part of it is like testing the waters and I guess people don't want to be the first to do something differently. They want to do things the way they've always done them. Yeah, I'm probably very naive as well and I'm not that worried about uh, a financial return which drives people that are commercial nuts when they partner with me because I don't give a shit if it doesn't make money. I just, you know, this is I want to trial this. I want to prove that it works or that it can be done without generating waste and I'm supposed in a way I'm more of an artist and, and a creative than I am an entrepreneur because I'm more interested in in creating something, a solution. Yeah. I just don't think waste needs to exist full stop. So I'm always sort of anytime somebody throws something at me, I give them a solution. I love trying to work that stuff out. One person that has been really supportive of all your ideas is Rob Adams, who's head of city design at City of Melbourne, an incredible man who we've actually interviewed on a podcast a few a couple of months ago and I was so inspired by him. How did you meet Rob and can you tell us a little bit about how how he became to be such a huge advocate for your projects in Melbourne? I met Rob. I got drunk one night with Nonda Katsalidis who designed the Eureka Tower and at the time I was having exhibitions in random places. You know, once a year I'd have an exhibition of my crazy ideas. Anyway, Nonda said, why don't you have it at the top of Eureka? He was building it, right? And the next day I called him and I said, do you remember what you said to me? Because, yeah, something about you having an exhibition. And I said, yeah. So a few months later, we had an exhibition at the top of Eureka, a level 87, I think it was. And the top 40 meters still was being built. So it was just under construction. And none of failed to tell anyone that it was actually happening. We had 600 people up there. Oh, God. And it was a crazy, 
crazy, amazing night that I'll remember for a long time because it was just, it was the first time that anybody had gone and seen Melbourne from that angle really at that height. And it was um, good fun. And that's where I met Rob and, and we connected immediately. And from there on, he. He's back to. Yeah. So many things that have happened over the years that stuff that he's tried to help me get, see through. And they haven't gone on, the, you know, a bridge that crosses from Melbourne Central. So the people that own Melbourne Central contacted me and said, we want to create something. And we came up with this incredible thing for that bridge. And that was knocked on the head by the people that own Myra at the time. And, and you know, there's just so many things. But then the farm on 271 Collins Street, that was really, Rob said, this is going to, this will work. I'll be able to convince us, convince the councillors. And in the weeks, so this was like a two and a half thousand, two and a half thousand square meter privately owned rooftop, 30 meters above central place, uh, center place. So the heart of the city, great because the building was privately owned. They were happy to give us a 20 year lease so we could invest, well, we wanted to invest $6 million in building this incredible farm school. So we wanted to get 50,000 kids through a year, teach them about aquaponics and about worms and about soil. And yeah, it was amazing. We even had someone come out from Holland that was going, that we sponsored. And, and one thing we didn't see coming was Matthew Guy was just approving towers everywhere. You know, everything that the city of Melbourne knocked back, Matthew Guy just said, yep, you can build it. Fuck the council. I'll let you do it. And so this development went 2.4 meter over the 30 meter height limit. And in that week, Matthew Guy approved another two buildings. And so the council decided that they could not be seen to support my idea because it went 2.4 metres over their 30-metre height limit. And, yeah, we got the only person that voted for it was Stephen Main. Even with Rob Adams' support. Yeah, he personally called every single councillor and begged them to, tonight, can you please support this because this is going to be, you know. So, yeah, and then... It's the years of phone calls and the you know the energy that goes the thousands of dollars that go into designing it and and what's that building now just nothing just the same nothing as there, it was before you know, it's yeah recently you did also have a setback with the project at Eastland is that right can you tell us a bit about that project Yoast we want a game changing building here we go again anyway there was a woman called Ivana who was for some reason it always ends up it's somehow there's always women that end up instigating. And driving these, like in uh, for Sydney Greenhouse, it was uh, another woman who was running Schiffer. And in the Perth Greenhouse, it was Renee Nutbeam, another woman at ISPT. And these women just get absolutely caned by the board, which are mostly men or just, just you know, they try and get tripped up. And it's amazing how resilient. I don't know why, but I think it's the fact that uh, women tend to see that there's more merit in the ideas. And, and yeah, anyway, this was... I really felt that this was going to happen. And so we put two years in. I basically designed a whole building that was designed around the waste that Eastland was creating. So there were waste audits done and that sort of stuff. And then there was a machine that could create oil. So you get a 95, between 90 and 95% conversion of the plastic that the butchers generate. And the, you know, Safeway gets all their stuff wrapped in plastic. So they were generating enough plastic to be able to run a whole building, three story building. It was going to be a farm. We had a mushroom farm, all this stuff. It was like a dream come true. A whole team working on it. We designed it. They spent a fortune getting to the point where it was ready to be built and then the board decided not to proceed. I don't know why, but it just never happened. 
so Eastland came to you and they were funding it, but then from within their own board, it was. That's, I've never actually been told the reason why it didn't go ahead, but yeah, that, yeah, so that probably was the thing that I struggled with the most, you know, because I really thought that, and I just felt sorry for the whole team as well, because everyone was so, I really felt that if we got this through, then every shopping center on earth would have a, would have a hub like this connected to it. And it's where people who gave a shit would go and shop while the people who don't give a shit go and shop in the shopping center, you know? Yeah. And can you tell us briefly about your the New Holland project too? That So I really wanted to – we bought this old service station site which had been cleaned up by Caltex and, yeah, I wanted to build a development that was totally off-grid, had no connection to sewer and, yeah, and same thing. Just I don't know how many meetings you can have with council and, you know, everyone's so nice and everyone smiles and then you get these emails and you go, hang on, did that come from the person we just met with or – I understand. I just wanted to ask you though briefly, in the face of all these recent setbacks, you do still keep generating new ideas and you do keep charging ahead. So when new opportunities come knocking, what is your approach in assessing them? Have you gotten a bit jaded thinking I'm sick of giving game-changing ideas to people that don't, you know, fully back them? Like what is your approach now moving forward to really, I guess, assess which ideas to invest your time in? I'm probably not, you know, I get approached all the time. So I'm saying no most of the time now just because I feel like I can't go through this process again and it might not do justice to some of the people that are approaching me and saying, no, look, this is a real thing and it happened actually today. I got a a few months ago an email from someone in Beijing, uh, in Shanghai who it was a real project with real money and they really wanted to realize what it is that I'm trying to do at Eastland. And then through uh, Megan Morton actually, I just bumped into her in Sydney last week and she said this woman's been trying to get in touch with you and you really and she explained this is you know they're really wanting to do something so sometimes you kind of push things away that you probably should but it's only because i'm yeah jaded by you know people saying yes we want to do this and people just aren't prepared to take risks with money and if you're not prepared to take a risk then and what i was going to say before if you look at where innovation has happened in the last 10 years it's with smartphones there's no regulation around smartphones because it didn't exist and it's so hard to innovate around things that houses and toilets have been around for, for a hundred years, or houses for tens of thousands of years, toilets for hundreds of years. So there's all these rules and regulations. So you can't innovate with that stuff. Whereas if you create something completely new, it's easy because no one's set a, a rules or boundaries around it. Yeah. That's when you can just get on and make change. Yeah. So before I go to the crowd, what is next for you? Are you having a little break from these big kind of stakeholder funded projects or do you have I just know you've got a big idea in there that's going to be I've got lots of big ideas but I'm going to have a break and go to Holland and have a holiday first yeah we might open up to the room if anyone has a burning question for Yoast hi there you obviously had a life-changing experience at the age of five when you started doing your classes and I almost feel like you're trying to change things from the top down. Would it be something that you consider to get into schools and teach a whole generation how to think and change and then they become the people that are making decisions in the future? That's really relevant actually because that's what this project in Shanghai is. This woman's trying to create like a, a place, especially in China, kids are not stimulated the way that we might get stimulated as kids in Australia because there's not many parks there's not you know it's all about study 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 and in 2008 I did I've done lots of tours with kids in all my projects and in 2008 there was a group that I can't even remember but 10 years later 
oh, it was actually um, seven years later, I get this beautiful letter from a kid that decided that his career path was sustainability and he got honors. And, you know, so it is for many kids, it's a really pivotal, pivotal moment in their life when they see something or they see something explained. And I think the greenhouse is really good because it's a dynamic building that's alive. There's lots of visuals. There's lots of smells. And so kids really responded well. I mean, it might have only been a 50-minute tour. I did them with Jason Kimberley from Cool Australia. But it really resonated with kids. And that's where we're not going to make the changes. We're not the ones that are going to build biophilic homes. We might, you know, put a vertical garden in, but it actually needs to be completely changed. And our kids, I think, will... Like the way that you know, my mum embraced rock and roll. They'll embrace. They they want to rebel. They want to. They're angry. I know my kids are angry that you know we've ruined the place, and they want to grab onto a solution and run with it. Hi, thanks for that. That was really awesome to hear tonight. I guess hearing all this, like I guess government rejection and like these negative cultural behaviours that are just accepted. How do you stay positive? Bloody good question. I'm not always positive, <laughs> but there's a guy, um, Alan Savory, who has I don't know if anyone's ever heard of the savory method. It's a method of farming that was developed in Zimbabwe in the 70s. He and I got I was lucky to spend time with him when he was in Melbourne and he said to me, you will never find an example in a democracy anywhere where a government's led. It's always the people have started a movement and the government has followed. And it wasn't really until that point in time when I realized he's right. You know, we're all getting so angry about looking at our politicians for not leading. Um, look at the example at the moment, you know, when 95% of the population doesn't want to have sheep being exported live, you know, they'll change because it's now becoming such a big issue and they'll change. And it's always the people that drive the change, whether you're talking 80 years ago or, or now, you know, so it's about us and they follow. Hi, thanks very much for tonight. That was amazing. Coles and Woolworths are some of the major contributors to waste in our community. I actually work in the Coles head office and I was just wondering what you think is the most important initiative that Coles or Woolworths can bring in the next five to 10 years to reduce their carbon footprint. I think uh, supermarkets encouraging organic production is the big thing. So the more organic produce that's available, the people don't realize that when you buy potatoes, they're sprayed with Roundup two weeks before they're harvested to kill the, the crop so it's easy to harvest. In American 95% of grains are sprayed off with Roundup to kill them, so they're easier to harvest. Right at the time when the grain is almost fully developed, they're fully absorbing this stuff. So the more that we demand organic food, the if we buy it, you will stock it. I mean, I don't – like politics, I don't buy the blaming the supermarket scenario. It's just madness. I think the only reason why the supermarkets have actually changed is because Aldi's become so successful and Aldi went – you know, we're not having any synthetic colouring. We're going, if it's fresh produce, it's grown either in New Zealand or Australia. We're not buying oranges from America, you know. They they strictly did all these things at the start. You can't, you don't get a plastic bag. No one expected them to be as successful as what they've been. And I think that that's actually one of the reasons. Why is Mercedes-Benz making electric cars? Mainly because Tesla's come out and made these incredibly successful cars, you know. So, I don't buy the blaming the supermarket thing. There's no point because if we're buying it, you can't blame you guys for selling something that everybody wants to buy. So I think an awareness of how important organic food is to us mentally, physically, and what impact it's having on us 
from so many different points of view. If supermarkets can encourage that, then that's a big thing. with all of Yoast's amazing ideas and projects, you should definitely follow him on Instagram at Yoast Backer. That's J-O-O-S-T-B-A-K-K-E-R. We featured Yoast's stunning home in Monbolk, which he designed himself. You can revisit that story via the link in our show notes, or if you're looking at the enhanced podcast, you'll be seeing some photos right now. We also made a truly beautiful little film about Yoast shot in his local area in the Dandenong Ranges a few years ago as part of our Melbourne Mornings series. It's well worth revisiting, and again, you'll find a link in our show notes. You've been listening to TDF Talks, a podcast from The Design Files, Australia's most popular design blog. This episode is supported by Mercedes Me, a cafe, event space, and concept store operated by Mercedes-Benz, on the corner of Collins Street and King Streets in Melbourne. Today's episode was recorded as part of our live event series at Mercedes Me. To keep up to date with all of our events, as well as other events taking place in the venue, you can follow them on Instagram at mercedesmestore.melbourne. If you're Melbourne-based, there are still tickets available for our final event on July 31st, featuring comedian, TV personality, and a passionate advocate for Australian design, Tim Ross. Tickets are $22 and they're on sale now at thedesignfiles.eventbrite.com. As always, all the links mentioned today can be found in our show notes at thedesignfiles.net forward slash podcast. And of course, you can also visit our main website, thedesignfiles.net, where we post new stories three times a day featuring Australian design, art, architecture, and more. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to TDF Talks on iTunes Our next episode features visionary Melbourne architect Jeremy McLeod. You won't want to miss that one. Thanks for listening. Listening.